All right, well, good morning to everyone and welcome to The Well here at STSA as we wrap up our series, Living Hospitality. And before I get into the topic for today, I want to tell you a story. So once upon a time, there was a pastor who was preaching about the topic of hospitality. And he did a series in his church about hospitality and the importance of hospitality and hospitality, hospitality, hospitality. And then he told his congregation that he was going to test them to see how hospitable they're going to be. So what he's going to do is he's going to randomly show, show up at people's houses, okay, uninvited, okay, unannounced. He's just going to show up at people's houses and see if they welcome him in and open the doors, okay, when he just knocks on the door. So he did this for many people in his congregation. He was welcomed and received. And you can imagine, you know, if I just surprised popped at your door on an evening, you would say, oh, welcome, cookies, whatever it may be, this would be great. And then he showed up to one family on a Saturday morning. And he went to this family and it was clear that the family was home. Like it was clear that somebody was home. Lights were all on, cars were in the driveway, like the windows were open and he could even hear some talking from inside. Like so he could hear the people are here. And he rang the doorbell, nobody answered. He rang the doorbell again and nobody answered. And he knocked and nobody answered. And he knocked again and nobody answered. And he knew somebody was home. So he took out one of his business cards and he was kind of frustrated and angrily, he was gonna leave his business card so the people knew that he was there. And he wrote on the back of the business card, Revelation 3.20. He wrote that verse, Revelation 3.20. Revelation 3.20, for those of you who know what it says, it says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens to me, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. So he slid that under the door. Next day at church. The end of the service, the, after the collection has been taken up, the guy who collects the collection, okay, said to the pastor, there's something here that I think you want to see. So in the collection plate was that same card that the pastor had dropped off at the people's house. But this time, okay, under where it said Revelation 3.20, it said Genesis 3.10. The person wrote back Genesis 3.10, so he's, what's Genesis 3.10? So he looked it up. Genesis 3.10 says, I heard your voice in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. <laughs> Welcome to the finale here of Living Hospitality. For the past two weeks, what we've been talking about this subject of hospitality, and you, like me, at the beginning of this series, you said to yourself, hospitality? What in the world are we going to talk about for three weeks' hospitality? Like, you can only talk about dinner parties, and the, the fork goes on the left or on the right, or how to make the napkins or the jello recipes. Like, what are we going to talk about for three weeks' hospitality? Who cares about hospitality? But hopefully you've seen over the past couple of weeks, as I have myself, is that hospitality is a big deal. And hospitality is a lot more serious a discussion than we may originally thought. We saw several verses in week one or passages where God connects hospitality to the end times and to our ultimate judgment. You remember he talked about, we talked about the parable of the sheep and the goats, okay? Where Jesus said on the final day, I'm gonna separate like a shepherd, the sheep over here and the goats over here. And what's gonna be the criteria? Well, was I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you clothed me. I was a stranger and you welcomed me in. And he saw, we saw that there's a big connection between hospitality and the end times. We also saw Jesus in Luke chapter 14 give a parable. Or, and he said, when you, he didn't say parable, I'm sorry, he told the people, he said, when you invite someone to your house, do not invite the rich, do not invite your brother, do not invite your relatives, do not invite the influential people, do not invite people who can pay you back. But you, when you have a dinner party, invite the poor, the blind, the maimed, the lame. Invite the people who will never repay you. And I myself, is what Jesus said, I myself will repay you at the resurrection of the just. And then our theme verse for this series, which is from 1 Peter 4, 9, which is when I was reading this, that's actually what, what, what prompted this entire series, is when St. Peter says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be hospitable to one another without grumbling. We would think the end of all things is hand is to preach the gospel. The end of all things at hand is to love your neighbor. The end of all things is at hand is to go read your Bible, go to confession. He says the end of all things is at hand, and he connects it to hospitality. That was week one. Week two, last week, we took that principle of hospitality in an individual sense, and we made a collective, us as a church, and we looked at how that same duty of hospitality is not just for us in our homes, but in our church home, and we looked at our first core value here at STSA. For those who were here last week or have gone through the membership group, you know 
that his church is built on 10 core values. And the first one is limitless acceptance. And limitless acceptance, we talked about it last week, says that every person who enters our church, every person who enters our church is the most important person in the world because they were sent by God and they should be received and loved and accepted as such. And we talked about how I and you do not have the right. I'm the priest of this church and I do not have the right and you don't have the right. No one has the right to reject the one that God has accepted. Nobody has that right. If God accepts them, then we accept them. If God loves them, then we love them. If God welcomes them, then we welcome them. And no one has the right to say otherwise. We looked at the story of Peter with Cornelius. Cornelius was a Gentile. That's about as different as you can get from Peter. And we saw how Peter really struggled. But God, he's different than me. But God, he didn't grow up like me. But God, they're bad. But God, they are. And God, they are. And God, they are. And God said, hey, hey, what I have accepted, you must not call unclean. What I have cleansed, you don't call it common. And same thing with us in the church. Someone doesn't think like you, we accept them and we embrace them. Someone doesn't vote like you, we accept them, we embrace them. Someone didn't grow up like you, we accept them, we embrace them. We accept and embrace the way we have been accepted and embraced by God and the way God does everybody else. That was last week. This week, finale of the series, one question I wanna answer, and it's a simple question, and it was a question that was asked to Jesus 2,000 years ago, and that question is this. Who is my neighbor? My goal today is to answer that question, who is my neighbor? This question came originally to Jesus, like I said, 2,000 years ago, after Jesus had answered another question. A man came to Jesus and asked him, Jesus, I can't read that entire Old Testament. It's long and it's complicated. Dumb it down for me. What's the most important commandment? And Jesus said the most important commandment, and he gave two commandments. What are those two commandments? The first one he said is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second commandment is like it. And the second commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. And the response from the man who asked the question originally was, who is my neighbor? What do you think was the intention of the guy who asked that question? Why ask that question who is, like what is his thought process? Was he asking this question out of good intentions or bad intentions? Let's say I say to you, you have to love all the members of the church. You have to love all the members of the church. And you say, well, who's a member? What is the church? What is the church? What are you trying to do? You're trying to find a loophole. You're trying to find a, oh, I believe in love. Because you can't, it says love your neighbor. So you can't argue the love part. I don't think I should love. No one would do that because you, you just feel bad. Like love, obviously you got to love. But what you can argue or loophole is the neighbor part. I agree we should love, love, love. All the neighbors. But she's not my neighbor because she talked bad about me. He's not my neighbor because he stole my job. And that person's not my neighbor because I don't like them. And the person who was asking this question was doing what we all do. So we're not going to judge this guy. What he was trying to do is what we all do. What's the bare minimum, Jesus? What's the bare, like dumb this down for me. Love your neighbor as yourself, I agree. Dumb it down for me. What's bare minimum, what's the lowest level that I can love a person and still define it as I'm doing okay? We do this all the time, don't we? How many times do I get asked the question? I give a sermon about a topic, I say something, say, does that mean I'm not gonna go to heaven if I don't do that? Does that mean I'm not gonna go to heaven? Like how much can I drink and how much alcohol can I have before I'm not gonna get kicked out of heaven? Like, how much can I look at other girls before my wife divorces me? Like, what's the bare minimum? How will I get kicked out of heaven if I do that? That attitude was what this guy had. And that's the attitude, to be honest, a lot of us have sometimes as well. So Jesus, as he always did, was the master of reading people's hearts, not just their words. He said a parable. And he said the most famous parable of all time. A parable that many people today refer to it without even realizing they're referring to the Bible. He told the parable of the Good Samaritan, okay, which even has a law named after it today in many states, okay. And he said this, the parable goes like this. A certain man, Luke chapter 10, verse 30. A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. Okay, let's pause the story right there. A man gets beaten up, left on the side of the road. A priest is walking by, and the priest does what? The priest sees him over there, 
passes by on the other side. Priest is thinking, I don't got time for this. You know, he probably did something wrong. The thieves could be around here somewhere. I'm late for church. Like I got to prepare my sermon for Sunday. The priest got a lot on his mind. We always give a pass to the priest in every story. We always give a pass to the priest. And then the Levite comes along and the Levite, when he arrived, came and looked and passed by on the other side, better or worse. What Levite did is better or worse. The Levite, so the man, saw, like the priest saw him and went to the other side. The Levite was on the other side, came over, said, woof, and walked back on the other side. <laughs> what he did was worse. What he did is he stared at him. And again, we are not going to judge because you know when we do the same thing? When we're driving on the road, woo, and then we, right, don't we do that? Something accident over there on the other side of the road, and we slow down to stare Okay, just long enough to see what happened, and we drive on. So this Levite was the first rubbernecker, okay, probably responsible for traffic somewhere back in Jericho 2,000 years ago. Now, here's the key to the story. Before I get into the Samaritan part, because I really want to focus more on these two than the other guys. If you were to ask the Levite and the priest, do you love your neighbor? What do you think they would say? Yes. Without a shadow of a doubt, yes. I'm a priest. The reason that I'm a priest, I'm serving my neighbor. I'm here for the, like my entire life is for the sake of my neighbor. I'm a Levite. Of course I love my neighbor. Just ask my mom. I went to visit her last week. Just ask the person who lives in the hut next to me or in the little villa next to me. I just took them a piece of bread because I knew that they were hungry. Ask my children. Ask the people. I serve in the church. I help old ladies cross the street. Like, come on, man. Of course I love my neighbor. If you were to ask these people, are you fulfilling what Jesus just said? Are you good with your neighbor? They'd of course said yes. They didn't do anything unloving. It's not like they beat the man themselves. It's not like they kicked him while he's down or stole his wallet. They just didn't do anything for him. Obviously, Jesus disagrees. And he tells the rest of the story. You all know, Luke 10, 33. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. When he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said to him, take care of him. Whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. Here's the key. Jesus always ended with a zinger. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. And what we're going to see here today is the love part, we're good. It's the neighbor part that sometimes we struggle. We're good at loving the people that we want to love. We're good at it. We like to love our children, most of the time. Okay. We like to love our friends. We like to love our parents. We like to love influential people who can help me in my career. Scratch my back, I scratch your back. We like to be very kind and giving and generous to the CEO guy, the boss guy, at least, be, at least in front of their face, maybe not behind their back. We like loving our rich uncle, who we know is going to be writing his will very soon. But that's not hospitality. Hospitality, we said in week one, is different than fellowship. Hospitality, the definition, is love of stranger. Love of the person who, you, who will never help you. Love of the person who can never repay you. And that, that's the challenge of life. The challenge of life is not to love. I believe the fact you're here on a Sunday morning, you're a loving person. You're a kind person. You want to do good things and you do many good things. I believe it. I've seen it. And oftentimes, I'll be honest, I'm the recipient of it. I always say we have the kindest, most generous, most giving congregation in the whole wide world. But that's not hospitality. The issue isn't the love part. The, the issue, the challenge is God open my eyes to the neighbor that I can't see. And I'm not talking about the homeless guy in the street. I'm talking about open my eyes to the guy in my office. Open my eyes to the guy in my family. Could be the guy, it could be the person sharing a bedroom with me. Open my eyes to see the person that is in need. Open my eyes to see the person that just needs somebody to believe in him, somebody to encourage him, 
somebody to give him hope, open my eyes to see that neighbor that you put in my life. And what I believe is when you pray that, I believe with all my heart, all my heart, that if you say that prayer today, I promise you tomorrow, God will reveal people again, not the home, it could be the homeless guy on your way to work, it could be, but it could be the person in the cubicle right next door to you that you thought you're good with it and you thought everything's fine, but you pray, God, open my eyes to my neighbor who's in need. God will open your eyes and you will see, oh my goodness, just like the Levite and the priest, how could I not have seen that person in such need around me? And that's my challenge for you. What we're gonna do here today is we're gonna look at three of the people in our lives, three of the people in your life and mine, not with their names, but three descriptions, three of the neighbors in our life that we may not be seeing around us, but God may put, be putting in our life because he wants us to love them. Three types of people who need our help and need our love of neighbor. The first one, my neighbor is the one who has no helper. My neighbor is the one who has no helper. And for every one of these three, I'm gonna ask you, like I said, pray God, open my eyes to see if there's someone in my life who has no helper. What I mean by no helper, one of the prayers that we say in the church, it's a beautiful prayer. We pray every time we celebrate the divine liturgy and we say the prayer for the sick. We talk about how God is the help of him who has no helper and the hope of him who has no help, hope. Otherwise translated, the help of the helpless and the hope of the hopeless. That's who God is. And we, as the body of Christ, we also, it is our duty to be the help of the helpless, the hope of the hopeless, to fight for him who cannot fight for himself. And let me give you a few examples of who that means. That means Christians who are persecuted on the other side of the world, who you'll never know and you'll never see, but they cannot fight for themselves. It is our duty to fight for them in whatever way that we can. That means girls coming from Asia who are being trafficked for sexual sex trafficking. And you may know nothing about them. You may never even hear their story. You may never meet them, but it is our duty it is our duty to do whatever we can to help those who cannot help themselves. Our duty to help the orphans, our duty to help the widows, our duty to help the abused children, our, our duty to help the little kids who can't help themselves, our duty to help the little kids who don't even have a voice because it's still inside their mother's womb. It is our duty to be the voice of the voiceless, to be the help of the helpless, because that's who Christ said that we are to be. Look what this says here in Hebrews 13, verse one. Let brotherly love continue. Do not forget to entertain strangers, hospitality. For by doing so, some have unwittingly entertained angels. And then he gives a specific example of a specific person that we should show hospitality to that you may, that may not be in your mind. Remember the prisoners as if chained with them, those who are mistreated since you yourselves are in the body also. Remember the prisoners as if chained with them. I'm not calling anybody out. I would be in the same boat. If I wasn't a priest, I'd be in the same boat. Because I'm a priest, people from prison do invite me to visit them. So I do go visit people in prison. So I do remember prisoners. But I'm not calling anybody out, but when was the last time you prayed for a prisoner? When was the last time you remembered a prisoner? Why should I care about prisoners? I didn't do the crime, they did the crime, they do the time. Wasn't any of my business. St. Paul would answer that. Why do I care about prisoners if it's not my crime? Because they're in the body with, with you. Why do I care about, uh, why do I care about uh, uh, this person who's sick? Because they're in the body just like you. Why about this person who care about this person who lost their job? Because they're in the body just like you. Why do I care about kids who cry themselves to sleep at night because their parents left them? Because they're in the body just like you. Why do I care about kids, like I said, who have no voice? Because they're in the body just like you. And that's St. Paul's answer to the question of why I should care. Go back to the story of the, of the, of the, the, the Good Samaritan. You had the priest and the Levite who looked at this person's problem and said, not my problem. His problem, not my problem. Compare that story to the story that we all know of the five loaves and the two fish. Okay, you know that story. When Jesus was on a mountain one day and there was 5,000 men plus women and children, 15, 20,000 people on that mountain. And Jesus said to his disciples, the most logical statement in the world, he said to 12 Middle Eastern men around lunchtime, you give them something to eat. 12 Middle Eastern men who probably never made a sandwich in their life. He said to them, you feed these 20,000 people. You give them something to eat. And the disciples like me and you said, not my problem. Send them away to get something to eat. And no one would say, oh, how unloving of them. If all of you people came right now to my house and said, give them something to eat, I would say, no. I would say, that's the whole Shake Shack announcement that Katie made, go to the Shake Shack, okay? <laughs> it's not unloving to not feed somebody like it's not unloving. But Jesus said, no, it is your problem. No, it's their problem. No, it's your problem. Why? Because they're in the body just like you. You figure it out. 
in the world today, you agree with me on this, it is so easy to turn away. There's so much evil in the world. There's so much suffering in the world. There's so much bad stuff that it just, you know, the next thing, after the next thing, after the next thing, after the next thing, this hungry person, this school shooting, this drug, this crime, this and next thing, the next thing, the next thing. It's easy to just say, you know, it's easy to do what the priest and the Levite did. We go to the other side, go on the internet, on social media, CNN.com, watch news, whatever it is. We stare just long enough to say, thank you, God, that it's not my family. Then we go back with our daily business. Oh, these Christians are persecuted over here. Thank God it's not me. Oh, there was a school shooting over here. Thank God my kids go to private school. Oh, this person, a uh, number of children who, are, who are, are left by their parents. Oh, thank God that my parents didn't leave me and we walk over to the other side. It's so easy to do that. But I don't think that's an option. I can't see when I read the scriptures how that's an option for us as the body of Christ. You heard me say several times in my example right there about babies. You know why I always speak about the unborn babies? Because you know the early church, one of my favorite stories about the early church, the early church, first century church, was so ahead on this one. Because the early church was the first one, you know, back in the first century, okay, in the Roman Empire. Killing, like abortion, was not seen, it was not a crime, and it was not seen as even wrong, okay? What they would do is those who had means to be able to abort the baby in, this, in the mother's womb would often do so if they didn't want the child or whatever reason they would abort the child. Okay, but those who are poorer, okay, and couldn't afford those means or weren't able to, they would simply have the child and just leave them by the river or leave them in the forest somewhere. And they didn't, they didn't call it killing the children. Obviously, you put a baby in by the river. They didn't call it killing children. They called it leaving them to their fate, meaning if it was the God's will that the baby would live, then the baby would live. And if it was not from the gods, they would get eaten by a bear, whatever it may be, or die, and it was from, from gods. Did you know that the church... The church was the first one. Like I say that story, you all are appalled by that, that anyone would do that. The church was the first one to be a voice for the voiceless. The church was the first one to say, every human being has intrinsic value, even if they cannot work, even if they cannot produce for society, they have intrinsic value. Doesn't mean, it doesn't matter if they're a year old, a month old, or a day old. Doesn't even matter if they haven't even been born yet, they're still in their mother's room. Every child has intrinsic value. The church was the first one to say that. And you know what the Christians used to do? The Christians who oftentimes were poorer than the rest of the people. The Christians who could barely provide for their own families. The Christians who struggled to put food on the table for the wife and the kids that they already had would go out to the forest and would take those children and raise them as their own. And that's why I said by the forest, because there was known, there were some of the pagans who would leave their kids, but they, they, their, their hearts tugged at them, okay, that they were killing their child. So they would leave them at certain places that they knew the Christians would find them. And you would have Christians, and they would have two, three, four, six, ten, whatever it may be, and they were taken into the church, and they were raised by the church. Why? Because it is the duty of the church to be the help of the helpless, the hope of the hopeless, the voice of the voiceless. With each of these three, you're going to lift your heart inside, and you're going to say, God, open my eyes to the helpless people who are around me that you want me to do something about. You're gonna pray that. You're not passing by, staring and walking to the other side is no more an option for us if we're in the body of Christ. That's number one, person who is helpless. The second person who is my neighbor. My neighbor is the one who has a burden they can't bear. My neighbor is the one who has a burden that he or she cannot bear. Like I said earlier, not doing wrong doesn't mean loving. Not doing anything negative doesn't mean that you were loving. James says in his epistle, I didn't put it up on the screen, but to him who knows to do good and does not do it to him, it is sin. Let me tell you a true story. You know, the story of the, of the, of the Good Samaritan is a parable, but let me tell you a true life version, and it's one that I lived. So this was back probably... 10, 15 years ago, something like that. I was a priest at the time, but I was a young priest. And I had to do something, which I've never done ever since then, and I'm never gonna do ever again. I had to go to court for like a ticket that I got, a speeding ticket. I don't like going in front of a court. 
Like, I'm the guy with the black robe who sits on the front of the stage. I did not like it. Like, the idea that another guy, like, <laughs> so I didn't like this thing whatsoever. <laughs> so ever since then, I drive much slower, not because I'm a good model citizen, because I don't have the humility to stand in front of another judge again. Like, I don't like that feeling. I don't like it. I'm going to stand in front of one judge one day, and that's the only one. So I drive slow for the sake of that. Anyway, here I am. This is back a long time ago, okay? I got a ticket. And I had to go to the court. But I had my whole little speech prepared. And I'm going to say this. And I'm going to tell him I'm a man of God. And I'm going to say, ever since then, I've been driving slow, religiously. Like, I was going to throw the pun in there. Like, I, was, I had my whole spiel. All that spiel, by the way, went out the window when the first guy on the uh, first court case, okay, was a military guy in a uniform. Okay, a military guy in a uniform who got carted off in handcuffs because he was going too fast, okay? And that judge was not messing around, okay? My term was like three or four after that. That whole speech that I had, I saw that, and I'm like, I'm really sorry, I'm just sorry, like, I just, my, my wife, my wife's pregnant, like, please. Anyway, the Good Samaritan story actually happens on my way into the court. What happened is, irony of ironies, I was running late to my court appointment. <laughs> I know, ironic. I'm supposed to be there, I remember them, let's say I'm supposed to be there at nine o'clock, and I'm running late, so I'm driving, I know, ironic, like a maniac to get there. I get in the parking lot. Again, I don't know the exact time. Let's say I get in the parking lot at like 8.53, which should be enough time, but you gotta go all the way down the thing. You gotta go all the way, all the way down the walkway, go through security, and I gotta find my courtroom. So I am stressed, and I am, like if you've never seen me walk, like I, like, I walk like NASCAR, like, like I, I walk pretty quick, okay? And especially when I'm in a rush, all right? That's the way I'm walking, and I'm walking like a thousand miles an hour, and I'm pew, 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 and I'm like mapping out like a squeeze there. I'm like going a thousand miles an hour. As I'm walking, thousand miles an hour, I remember passing by this couple, all right? And the couple, I'm confessing, this is a long time ago. I totally judged this couple. It was the spiky hair. Here's the spiky haired couple, okay? And the black and the leather and the boots and like the, the jacket with like buttons everywhere and like lots of buttons is what I remember, okay? And tattoos and everything. And I remember walking by them and like, thousand miles an hour, I'm like judging them, you know what I mean? And, I'm, and then I keep walking, okay? And, and I, I remember walking, you walk down like this little ramp, then you gotta go up, okay? And it's like three or four steps or whatever it may be. And then there's like another ramp and three or four more steps. And I'm going three steps at a time, like I'm boom. And there's this elderly couple. And they are, you know what I mean? Like they're clearly struggling up the steps. So I, as a priest, what did I do? Absolutely, I zoomed right by him thinking that my, like, my, my shockwave would just help them up the thing, okay? That, like, you know what I mean? And I zoom right by them, okay? But I got a court thing, like I got a court thing, like I gotta be in there at a certain time. I get inside, I'm like, okay, I'm gonna make it, it's 8.58, I'm going through security. And then after you go through security, you gotta walk back this direction, but it's a glass, like a window. So you can see from here outside. So I walk this way and I go in the door and then I go back this way. And as I'm walking this way, I'm like, I'm gonna make it. I looked out the window and I saw the elderly couple and someone was helping them up the steps. Who was helping them? The spiky haired guy. And I just. I'll never forget that. And that was a shift in mindset. The question is not, am I doing anything bad to the elderly couple. That's not the criteria. Did I do anything bad to them? No. But the question is, am I loving my neighbor? Am I helping them with a burden that's too much for them to bear? I like this verse from Galatians 6.2. It says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. I love that. Fulfill the law of Christ. It says, that's the goal. And then I like this last sentence right here. He says, for if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Why do you throw that in there? Bear one another's burdens so you don't deceive yourself. Because if anyone thinks he's a big and high and mighty preacher and he's Father Anthony, he's on the YouTube and the people love him and whatever it may be, and he thinks himself to be something, the criteria in God's eyes is bear one another's burdens. What's the difference between love your, loving someone and bearing their burdens? What's the difference? If you would ask me, did you love that couple? Yes, I love them. Pray for them, encourage them. Go couple, up the steps, there you go. One left foot, right foot, go, 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 go. I love them. What's bear one another's burdens? If you see me carrying a box, 
okay? And the box is really heavy. You can love me by praying for me, thank you very much, by encouraging me, I love that, by, by advising me, by, by, by many, many, many different things. But there's only one way to bear my burden, and that is to do what? Carry the box. Carry the box. Put down what's in your hand and help me carry the end of the box. Anything short of that, maybe you can convince yourself you're loving, convince yourself you're a nice guy, but you're not bearing my burdens unless you actually help me to carry the box. So my question to you, who in your life is carrying a burden they cannot bear? Who in your life is carrying a box that's too heavy for them to do by themselves and they just need someone to just hold the end? Maybe it's a single mom in your neighborhood who just needs, you know what? Just one night, just go and say, you know what? I'll give you this Friday night, I'll watch your kids. You go enjoy your time. Maybe it's the elderly couple in your neighborhood that just needs someone to go and visit them. Someone to say, hey, you need me to help shovel the thing or mow the lawn? Just someone to ask about them. Maybe there's a kid who just needs someone, instead of saying, get off my lawn, kid, someone to just say, hey, kid, you know how to throw a baseball? You want me to teach you? Someone to believe in it. Maybe it's a sick person who just needs someone to say, hey, how you doing? Anything you need? If you're like me, you hear what I just said, and you think to yourself, but Father Anthony, there's too many needs. There's too many needs. I can't do that for every sick person. I can't do that for every elderly couple. I can't do that for every single mom. I can't do that for everyone. My thought is always in that macro sense, but I can't do it for everyone. And then I read it one time in a book or heard it in a sermon, I remember. And someone said, do for one what you wish you could do for all. Because you know what? I cannot visit every sick person. But if I visit one, and you visit one, and you visit one, and you visit one, and you visit one, you know what? We'll visit every sick person. It doesn't need Father Anthony to visit every sick person. It doesn't need you to help every elderly couple. It doesn't need you to help every single person who's a single mom. But it requires you to do your part and me to do my part, and together we cover all the needs. My Good Samaritan story, I think about it all the time. And I'm glad God gave it to me because it'll never happen to me again. I don't think that God, I don't look at that and say, you know what, God's going to punish me for messing up. I don't look at it that way at all. I look at it as I missed an opportunity. I missed an opportunity to help. I missed an opportunity to be the star of the Good Samaritan story. Like I missed an opportunity to be the main character in the Good Samaritan story on that one day. Instead, I ended up being bad guy number one. Exit stage left after that. Ask yourself, who in your life bears a burden that they can't carry? Third of your neighbors. Simply, the one who God sends to me. Simply, the one God sends to me. Or the one God sends me to. And what I mean by that is, there's certain people that you may not realize it, but God has put them in your life. And he put them in your life to bless you. And the way he to bless you is by you helping to bear their burdens and carry them for them. We're going to look at a story of a guy named Ananias. Ananias was a star in the book of Acts chapter 9. Without Ananias, you may not have heard of him. But you know, without Ananias, none of us are here today. Because Ananias was a critical member of the early church who you know nothing about. Ananias shows up at the time where Saul, okay, who we know as St. Paul, okay, but formerly Saul, before he was converted, was a persecutor of Christians. And he was the worst of the worst. He was public enemy number one for anyone who believed in Christ. He hated them. He, had, he was breathing out like vengeance and threats against them. And he had many of them murdered for the sake of their faith. And then he met Jesus. Walking down the road, Christ appears. He does his conversion. And now all of a sudden, Saul flips 180 degrees. But the news had not really spread yet about Saul's conversion when Ananias enters the story. Okay, we're gonna pick up the story in Acts chapter nine, verse 10. This is right after Jesus appeared to Saul. Now he appears to Ananias in a faraway place. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him, the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, arise, go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying, and in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. Let's pause the story right here. Let's say 
top five things that you don't want to hear if you are a Christian as an order from God. I would say number one through five is go knock at Saul's house. The one thing, like here I am, I'm Ananias, I'm a good boy. I'm praying, I'm serving in the church, I'm helping the poor. Jesus, what is it that you need me to do? I need you to go to Saul's house and say, hi, I'm Ananias, I'm a Christian, nice to meet you. You know what this is the equivalent of? This is like during World War II, a Jewish girl knocking on Hitler's door and saying, would you like to buy Girl Scout cookies for me? <laughs> this is a death sentence. Like, with all due respect, God, do you know who Saul is? Do you know who I am? Like anything in the world except go knock at this guy's door. Verse 13. And Ananias answered politely, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Saying what nicely? Bad idea, God. Try again. Say, God, I'll do anything that you tell me to do, but this is not a good idea. And do we judge Ananias? No. Who's Ananias looking out for? Well, he's got to take care of his wife and kids. Okay, back then, if Ananias dies, who's going to take care of my wife? Who's going to take care of my kids? Who's going to preach the gospel? Who's going to do all these good things that I do in the church? Ananias only looking out like oh, Ananias being logical. You and I would say the same thing. God? Notice God doesn't even answer his, doesn't even answer. God just keeps on going as if like I didn't hear anything, just swats him away. The Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. What is God saying? Summarize what God is saying right here. What God is saying to Ananias, trust me. He didn't address it. He, like, this would have been the time to say, no, don't worry. He converted. I just appeared on the road. Everything is fine now. He's actually going to write like half of this thing called the Bible. You'll hear about it one day. He could have said all those things. He didn't say anything. He just said, go. Trust me. Trust me. He said, go help Saul carry his burdens and I will help you carry your burdens. And Ananias had a decision to make. Thankfully for us, he made the right decision. Verse 17, Ananias went his way, entered the house, laying his hands on him. He said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales and he received his sight at once and he arose and was baptized and the rest is history. We are here today because of the work Ananias did to bring Saul and all that Saul did to become St. Paul. We know from that. Would anyone have blamed Ananias if Ananias said, no, thank you? Would anyone have blamed him and said, Ananias, you're so mean, you're so unloving. You won't go to a persecutor's door and knock and say, my name is Ananias, would you like to become Christian? Like you won't do that? None of us would have blamed him. But Ananias understood that loving your neighbor meant the one who is helpless, the one who has a burden that he can't bear, or simply the one who Jesus sends me to, or the one who Jesus sends to me. If I had to give one advice at the end of this series, one takeaway, learn to carry the burdens of others and trust Jesus to carry yours. And this is something that I can't, I can't put into words. It's going to be, I'll do my best, but it's hard for me to put into words. The principle of all of life, you carry the burdens of others and you trust God to carry yours. The more you focus on your own burdens, trust me from experience, I've seen this in my life and I've seen it in the lives of so many people. Trust me, trust me, trust me, trust me. The more you focus on your own burdens, the bigger they become. I promise you, the more you focus on what's wrong in your life, the bigger it becomes. And the more you focus on how I can ease the burdens of others, the more your own becomes smaller and smaller and smaller. Why? It's a mystery that Christ carries the burdens of the one who carries the burdens of the least of these people. What does that mean practically? That means practically this, and forgive me, okay? I'm not trying to, to ruffle some, I'm kind of, actually, I'm trying to ruffle some feathers. That means stop praying for your own marriage. Pray for someone else's marriage. I'm not saying stop praying for your own marriage. Stop caring only about your marriage and your own marriage problems. Start caring about someone else's. Stop praying only for your own sickness and what's ailing you and look around 
and see the sicknesses of others and see how you can pray for them and care for them. Stop asking and complaining and whining about your burdens that no one is helping you with and instead open your eyes and see whose burdens you're not helping. One of my favorite verses, Matthew chapter 11, verse 20. You probably heard this before. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. We love this verse. Come to me, you who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Come to me, I will give you rest. We love it. It sounds nice. Let me tell you how you can misinterpret this verse. Just this past week, I was driving and I was listening to the radio. It wasn't a Christian radio. It was one of the, the bad radio stations, okay? But I was, you know, doing research for a series on something bad, okay? Whatever. And as they were playing this song, okay, the lady comes on and she's got like, she kind of sounds like a preacher, but it's not a Christian radio. And I hear her say this verse, come to me, you who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. I'm like, this is cool. Like preaching, like preach on sister. And then I listened to what she had to say. And she said, who's stressed out there tonight? Who has a burden out there tonight? Who, and she went on and on, who is what? And she said this verse and she said, just give the burden to God and then go relax. Go relax. And then she explained, give the burden to God and go have a drink. Give the burden to God and go jump in the hot tub. Give the burden to God and just go enjoy being with nature. I'm like, that's not how it works. Like I wanted to call in. It's not how it works. It's not how it works. You just say, give it to God and everything. Wee, it just goes away. That's not how it works, lady. You know how it works? It works with the rest of the verse. You come to me and I give you rest. You know why? Because you take my yoke upon you and learn from me. You take my yoke upon you and you learn from me. You get my rest when you live the way I lived. And I didn't just care about hot tub and drink and nature. I spent my whole life carrying the burdens of others. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and lonely in heart. And then you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Rest from God doesn't come from a hot tub. Rest from God doesn't come from have a drink. Rest from God isn't just some hocus pocus. Rest from God comes when I say, God, I got a burden that's big. But she got one that bigger. So I'm going to trust you with mine. And I'm going to go help her with hers. The rest of Jesus comes from the lifestyle of Jesus. Not from some magic drinking hot. Bottom line, I believe, and I hope you agree with me, that helping the weak, helping the burdened, helping the helpless, there's something, it's a mystery, cannot be explained. There's something about it. When we serve those who are truly in need without anything in repayment, again, not when we invite our friends over, we invite the one who has no one. It's a mystery. And I can't explain it, but I know it exists. And I'll tell you what, I even feel it when I preach about it. One time, several years ago, I gave a sermon about preaching, I'm sorry, about serving and about helping the helpless and about the least of these and about doing for the, the, the little guy who can never repay you. And during that sermon, I didn't see it, obviously, because I was preaching, so I'm preaching this way. People told me that behind me, okay, some people saw like a face of Christ appear. Some people saw, saw that. Uh, of course, I didn't see it because I'm facing this way, but I do remember one of the guys, the guys came over and told the other priest, this is behind him, and I remember being very annoyed at him, like distracting my sermon, telling him to get out, but he was telling him that like the face of Christ, some people saw the face of Christ appear, not because of me, okay? And some people are nodding their heads that may have been there at the time, not because of me, but because of the message, because there's something powerful about serving the one who is helpless. And I told you I can't explain it, but maybe I can sort of explain it. Maybe there's a reason why Jesus is, so, Jesus is so close to the poor, the weak, the abandoned. You know why? Because that's who he is. That's who he was. Jesus was poor, not rich. Jesus was weak, not strong. Obviously strong, but lived as a weak. Jesus was abandoned. Jesus was despised, rejected, with grief acquainted. That's who Jesus was. And maybe, maybe that's why he's so close to those same people today. And maybe that's why when we wash the feet of somebody, we wash the feet of Christ. When we visit the person who has no one to visit them, we visit Christ. When we help an elderly couple up a few steps, we help Christ himself. Because Christ lived as that person. One of the things that we say in the divine liturgy, we say, God, we talk about God who created everything in heaven and earth and the sea. And we say, God, 
who dwells in the highest, but looks upon the lowly. You want God to look upon you? I'll tell you where to go. Go down to the lowly. And that's where you will find him. And the one who commits his life to serving the lowly, the least of these, the one who lives a truly hospitable life, that person will never say, where is God? Where are you, God? Because they'll be right there with him. I invite our music team to come back up here on stage. We're going to wrap this series up here with a nice little song. I hope as we conclude this series that you have seen, as I have seen, the value in loving a stranger. Loving your friends, that's great. That was not this series. That's super important. I'm not taking away from that, but that's not this series. This series was is loving the stranger, loving the outcast. Loving, as I said today, I gave you three examples of neighbors, and I'm asking you to pray, especially as we sing this last song. Who in my life has a burden they can't bear? Who in my life needs help? Who in my life has God sent to me and brought into my life because he wants me to be that good Samaritan for them? Maybe a lonely person. Maybe an anxious person. Maybe a deserted person. Maybe a struggling, maybe the person who's sitting right next to you right now. Each of us you know, lift our hearts and say, God, send me wherever you want me to go. And like Ananias, we will say, Lord, here I am to do your will. Let's stand together. God who's never late is working all things out, is working all things out.
Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. Heavenly Father, as we stand before you, all of us, one voice saying, yes, I will. We will go, Lord, wherever it is that you send us, wherever it is that you call us to serve, Lord. We, we no more, Lord, want to just like seek our own and just care about our own stuff. We're praying that you would open our eyes to see the people that are in our lives, Lord, that have burdens that they can't bear, and that you give us to trust in you enough, Lord, not just to care about our own stuff, to care about those whom you care about, the least of these, Lord. And we know, Lord, that when we do that, you will bless us in such extraordinary ways. So I pray that you would help us to see that. Encourage those who need encouragement here today, Lord. But most important, let us leave here with like a renewed sense of we're not just here for ourselves, and we're not just care about ourselves, and we're not just focused on our own problems. But help us, Lord, to take our eyes off ourselves and to see the people around us that are in need. Pray these things in the mighty name of your Son, the intercessions and the prayers of all your saints. Hear us as we pray thankfully. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Thank you, Father Anthony, and thank you,